Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Thanks so much for joining us today for a special edition of Take Two. Joining us from Washington, D.C. in a busy day, Senator Mike Lee. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Heidi. Good to be with you. Senator, I feel like there is a long list of questions that people have as they're watching what's happening in Washington right now. And one of the first ones that people are looking at is the death ceiling and where we're headed with that. There's a lot of questions. I think people are taking sides, but where are we right now? The debt ceiling is a big issue. Uh, the debt keeps going up. The ceiling, a lot of people say, has to go up. Where do you stand on that? The House is going to be doing a lot of the negotiations early on here. But do we need to raise the debt ceiling? Well, yeah, we've got to raise the debt ceiling because it's coming. It's coming at us. The question isn't really about whether to raise it. It's about what conditions to attach to it. Now, President Biden has astoundingly made the claim that uh, he, he insists that it be raised without any conditions at all. This doesn't reflect modern realities. The fact that we're now approaching $32 trillion in debt, the fact that well, we've seen baseline federal spending go from uh, a little over uh, $4 trillion dollars uh, a year as recently as 2019 uh, to an average of about $6 trillion a year right now. These things aren't sustainable and so we need a path going forward to get back to spending at or below 2019 levels. And so there's going to be a lot of discussion about that between now and late spring or early summer when this decision comes to a, a point where we'll be voting on something, um, uh, perhaps in May or in June. In your mind, what would be a realistic condition or two that would get us headed in the right direction? So we raise the debt ceiling, but what would need to be attached to that so we could move to a direction where we don't have to keep raising the debt ceiling? Yeah, I'll tell you what uh, Senate Republicans uh, believe. Uh, we, we've adopted as a, a position as a Senate Republican conference that Anytime we're asked to raise the debt ceiling, uh, that debt ceiling increase ought to be accompanied by spending cuts um, uh, equal to or greater than the value of the uh, debt li limit increase, or alternatively, structural spending reforms, uh, uh, procedural changes that will change the way we spend in the future. I think either one of those or some combination of the two uh, might be what the doctor ordered here right now. But as you alluded to, um, the House of Representatives is going to be in the principal driver's seat here. They, they'll be moving first, and um, I'm meeting over the next few days and weeks with some of my counterparts in the House of Representatives uh, to find out what they're thinking about over there. When you talk about structural changes, I know that your colleague, Senator Romney, has a trust act that he looks at that could possibly make some changes in some of the biggest barrels of spending we have and Social Security among them of things that may not be solvent if we look down the road 10, even 15 years. Do you see the Trust Act as being possibly part of the solution? 
You know, I, I doubt the Trust Act is ready to go for this one. I doubt that that one could be used in connection with this. I don't know how far along he is on that or how many supporters he's got. It's certainly something uh, I'd be happy to look at. Um, but uh, right now, we, we need something to deal with a plan for domestic discretionary spending. That part of the uh, federal spending that is not mandatory. And I, I think that's what we're going to be anticipating with this round of debt ceiling discussions. Do you think that the Senate and the House can get to a point where we can back off some of that spending? We keep seeing these massive spending bills. Oftentimes, Utah voters know that you'll be a no vote on that, but just your no vote doesn't change it. It certainly sets the principle that what they're doing is not headed in the right direction. But how do you make that change so that you're not the only no vote and that there are actual um, discussions about cutting back on some of the spending? Well, first of all, never the only no vote on these things. There are a growing number of senators and representatives uh, who are seeing the devastating consequences of this and are seeing, among other things, that the average Utah family is now having to shell out an additional $1,000 a month every single month on their basic monthly expenses uh, relative to just two years ago, the day Joe Biden took office. And this is a result of out-of-control spending in Washington. We perpetuate that both when we pass massive spending bills uh, that are far too big, where we're adding uh, $2 trillion or more a year uh, to our national debt, and then when we raise the debt ceiling without any uh, spending constraints moving forward. So the, the number of people opposing those is increasing all the time they're seeing that this is devastating America's poor and middle class. Look, it's really good for rich people. It's really good uh, uh, for the governing class here in Washington and a handful of elites on Wall Street. It's really bad for everybody else. Have Republicans been part of the problem? I was listening to some Democrats earlier today. Senator Warren said Absolutely. if those Trump tax cuts hadn't passed or if we hadn't gutted the IRS, maybe we wouldn't be in the mess we're at right now. We wouldn't be raising the debt ceiling. Yeah, look, uh, there's no question that the accumulated debt is a problem of bipartisan creation. Uh, if you look back 20 years ago, where our national debt was uh, under $5 trillion, it then doubled over the next uh, seven or eight years uh, under a Republican president and under a Democratic president. Uh, and it then doubled again over the next year, eight years after that between a Republican president and a Democratic president. So yeah, we've contributed to it. I wouldn't say the 2017 tax reform package is part of that, quite to the contrary. Before the pandemic, we were already seeing, uh, we were starting to see an acknowledgement on the part of many experts that the uh, tax reform package enacted in 2017 was actually uh, uh, paying for itself in great abundance because of the economically stimulative qualities. It was leading to economic growth, uh, bringing us more revenue into the federal government. The big area that we've got to focus on is on the fact that we're spending too much and we've adopted policies that have suppressed economic growth. Uh, uh, we, we need growth and we also need spending discipline reform moving forward in order to deal with this. And, and like I say, it's, it, this is not just an esoteric problem. It's not just a, an abstract mathematical problem. Uh, this is causing real problems for people on the ground. People shelling out an additional $1,000 every single month for everything they buy. Uh, this is the direct result of this. And increasingly, it's making it more difficult for Congress to fund 
everything from defense spending to social security and everything in between it. Uh, our ability to do all those things is impaired uh, by the kind of reckless decisions we've seen made by both parties. The top two concerns I see from people online right now, they're talking about the cost of eggs and they don't like to pay $9 a dozen. They're also talking about what's sort of turned into a joke but is a serious issue right now. We're looking at President Trump uh, with classified documents at his home at Mar-a-Lago. Then we find out that President Biden also has at several different offices and locations classified documents. And then just yesterday we find out the same from Vice President Mike Pence. Is the expectation at this point that almost any senator who's seen classified documents, every former president has them at home? What kind of problem is this? I think a lot of people are worried and wondering, you know, is this an everyone problem or is this just really an isolated incident or two or three we're seeing? Okay, so how do you, there are several questions built into that. Let me address the part dealing with senators first. As to senators, it is highly, highly unusual that any U.S. senator would have uh, classified documents in his or her personal possession, ever. Uh, uh, I mean, with very, very rare, very unusual exceptions. When we as senators review classified material, which we do all the time, we do it only in the confines of a secured facility known as a SCIF. The documents don't leave that. We don't walk out with them. It would be a felony if we did so. Uh, there are very rare uh, exceptions to that, available even to very few senators. So it still perplexes me as to why President Biden would still have documents in his possession that were classified from the time he was serving in the U.S. Senate. As to the broader issue of documents in the possession of President Trump, President Biden, Vice President Pence, former Vice President Biden. Uh, we're trying to get answers on this. We've asked for classified briefings so that we can understand what these documents are. In order to understand the full ramifications of them, we need to know what kind of documents we're dealing with, how they came into possession of them. There is some difference, uh, of course, between a president and a vice president. The documents that we're dealing with with President Biden that are, are, are of concern were acquired um, in addition to those he picked up while he was a senator, um, he also has a number that were acquired while he was vice president. A vice president, unlike the president, doesn't have the ability to declassify documents. So that may be a difference. Now, we don't know exactly what has been declassified and what hasn't among the documents that either one of them have. But that is a pretty critical distinction that has to be borne in mind. But more importantly, we, we need to know the details of what documents we're talking about, whether it's with President Trump, uh, uh, President Biden from when he was vice president or Vice President Pence. Um, until we get answers to those questions, it's difficult to speak on the extent of the problem. As we've gotten precious little out of the media, I, I understand why a lot of that might be sensitive. That's why we're asking for a classified briefing on it. One question that's come up in many people's minds is they're wondering, you know, is this something that everyone ends up bringing home and maybe we won't know until we know what's in those classified documents. But does our government classify too many documents where it may not be a big deal and a president or a vice president brings them home because it doesn't seem that important? It's an open, I guess, issue to Americans that we want to know what goes on with our government. So part of the concern is, are we classifying things that the American people should be able to know about? Yeah, in response to that question, I think the answer is probably yes. I think we probably do overclassify. It's a, it's a complicated problem, but I, I, I think that's accurate to say we probably overclassify. That still doesn't explain why someone would walk home with a document that whether uh, it, it was classified uh, in the first instance,
correctly or not, if it is still classified, uh, unless, uh, unless you're talking about the President of the United States at the time having declassified it, um, it usually doesn't give you the ability to just walk away with it. Now, a President of the United States at the time he's, he's President, uh, in addition to having the declassification authority, also has permission in many circumstances to possess classified documents off-site, meaning not at the White House. And uh, arrangements are, are uh, often made, uh, typically have been made for presidents to maintain those documents off-site. Uh, the question becomes of what happens to them after. Uh, that's a fairly complicated process. But there again, we need more details to know uh, what uh, the ramifications are for e either President Trump or President Biden or former Vice President Pence. And do you believe we'll be getting those answers with the investigations going on currently? Eventually, yes. I am a little frustrated that, that uh, we haven't gotten more answers to that, but yeah, eventually that'll come out. And I think, I think there is some danger in jumping to a lot of conclusions as to any of them before we know the circumstances under which those documents came into their possession and what those documents were and what the risks were uh, uh, why it is that uh, it ought to be concerning to the American people. Switching is there, there is a huge range of, of in terms of the severity, um, uh, the urgency of keeping something under wraps and keeping something protected. Uh, we still know very little about what these documents were. All right, hopefully we'll get some answers there. I want to switch gears now and ask, switch gears, I can't spit that out, and talk a little bit about Lieutenant Ridge Alconis. I know you've been working on his case. Uh, he's in a Japanese prison right now. What are the last conversations you've had, and is there any headway being made right now on his wife and his children's behalf? Yeah, so uh, in just in the last few days, I've had follow-up conversations with the U.S. Ambassador to Japan, Ambassador Rahm Emanuel. Ambassador Emanuel and I have been working on this together closely for many, many months. Uh, and he, he helped me as I went over to Japan a few months ago to visit, it, uh, to visit Lieutenant Alconis in prison and to try to negotiate his release. Uh, there have been ongoing conversations, including conversations between President Biden and uh, Japanese Prime Minister uh, Kishida during his recent visit to the United States. Uh, there are ongoing efforts to secure his return to the United States, perhaps as part of a prisoner transfer agreement. I remain hopeful and optimistic that we're going to get there, and we're going to get there within the next month or two. I, I've, I've said for quite some time that he needs to be home. He needs to be on U.S. soil, even if that means in U.S. custody or in the custody of the U.S. military, no later than the end of February. This has gone on long enough. Look, this is a man who is serving his country, the United States of America, as a uh, celebrated, revered naval officer, one of the best and brightest in his field. He was with his family in Japan while on assignment from the U.S. Navy, driving with his family down from Mount Fuji when he experienced a medical emergency. That medical emergency caused him to lose consciousness. He was not on notice that he had such a medical condition. He had no reason to believe that he would lose consciousness, but he went unconscious. Tragically, he was involved in an accident that resulted in the uh, awful death of uh, two Japanese citizens. The family has paid out over $1.6 million in restitution to the victims' families. Now, uh, under Japanese custom, typically, uh, no one will serve a prison sentence under these kinds of circumstances for that, but he was 
nonetheless subject to a three-year prison sentence in Japan. We believe that's unfair in any event. Uh, we believe that this prisoner needs to have the opportunity to be returned to the United States. Before we run out of time, Senator, what are your congressional goals or priorities as we head into the rest of this year? We know we're dealing with the debt ceiling and investigations going on in the House, but what are you working on specifically in the Senate that people can be watching for this year? Okay, so first and foremost, we do need to rein in federal spending. We've already talked about that. We also need to rein in federal regulations. The fact that most of our laws, measured by word length, weight, uh, economic impact, are arguably written by unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats. We're working on legislative reforms to rein in uh, the extent of the federal regulatory system in its ability to make new laws. Those need to be passed by Congress. I'm also working on a number of competition policy bills including one dealing specifically with ad tech, with the extent of Google's power uh, to dominate uh, online advertising. It's currently occupying so many roles as buyer, seller, dealer, broker, agent when it comes to digital advertising. And I've got legislation that would help to eliminate some of those conflicts of interest and pare that down because they've, they've become too dominant in that area and dominant specifically by engaging in anti-competitive behavior. The U.S. Department of Justice filed litigation uh, uh, addressing the severity of this action yesterday, and I've introduced legislation to deal with the underlying problem so that this never happens again. Senator, thank you so much for joining us and for your time today. We'll chat again soon.